If you have your Bibles, why don't you make your way to the book of Jude? It's the second to last book of the Bible. It's right before Revelation, so just go to the back. We're going to be continuing our series through Jude's short little letter. It's 25 verses total. And I just want to recap a little bit of, of who Jude is, who wrote it, what's the context of it, what's, what's the point of, this, of these 25 verses, why is it important? So we learned last week, or, or I preached through, that this is Jude, Jesus' half-brother. He says he's the brother of James, and James wrote the epistle of James. So this is who Jude is. He was the half-brother of Jesus, claimed that Jesus was crazy, wanted Jesus to be quiet like most of Jesus' other family, but after Jesus Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension to heaven, we see Jude now calls himself a servant of Jesus, a slave, a willing slave to Jesus. He's not Jesus' half-brother anymore. He's a servant of Jesus Christ. So it's most likely the book of Jude has been written about 68 to 70 AD. It comes after 2 Peter, and it comes before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And his theme is that truth is under attack. That was sort of the overall theme last week as we looked through just four verses of Jude. And as I, as I um, ignorantly claimed last week, I was like, eh, it'll be three weeks and we'll be done with Jude. And then I caught myself and I said, wait a minute, let's see where the Spirit leads me. Uh, so most likely it'll be four weeks, but again, no promises. I would rather preach a little bit shorter and make sure you get more in your brain than preach an hour-long sermon. Um, I'll be honest, my attention span is short, and I get sick of hearing my own voice for a half hour or for an hour. Uh, so just, again, a little bit of a recap. Let's read the, fir- the first four verses of Jude, and as we read them, I'll stop and, and sort of point back to last week's sermon if you weren't here. So Jude... Chapter 1, obviously there's only one chapter, verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So last week we looked at Jude saying, he's reminding his audience who they are in Christ. He says, you are called, you are loved, and you're kept. And he pronounces this blessing over them, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Verse 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The second point of last week's sermon was that Jude changed his plan. He originally wanted to write probably this nice encouragement letter to these believers saying uh, all about the common salvation and the faith they share in Jesus Christ. It probably would have been a really nice read, a nice happy letter. But he says something. He says, I found it necessary. He says, I felt a mandate to. I felt the burden to to write to you to contend for your faith, to fight for your faith, fight for the truth. And in verse 4, we read why he changed his theme. He says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So Second Peter and Jude, there's a lot of, of, of verses that sort of overlap. Jude, not that he steals from Second Peter, but I would say he, he borrows a lot of ideas from Peter. And Peter alludes to the fact that apostates, false preachers, people who know who God is, they know the truth, and they say, nah, no thank you, I'm going to reject that, and God, I know you're real, whatever, but, but I'm in control of my life. He says, these apostates will be coming. 
be on guard. Just like most of the New Testament says, be on guard, false preachers are coming. Jude says, they're here. These false preachers, these apostates are here. And we looked at just sort of characteristics. He calls them ungodly in verse 4. They pervert the grace of God. They, they twist who Jesus is, and they deny him as their only Lord and Master. And if you notice throughout Jude's letter, and we'll read a little bit more, we're going to read verses 5 to 11 in a few seconds here, but Jude really likes the letter 3. So I don't know, you'll, you'll pick up on this. If you look at your notes, everything is sort of nice and neat in threes. I didn't just come up with that cleverly. That's the way Jude structures his, le- his letter. Even in verse 1, to those who are called, loved, and kept, may mercy, peace, love. One, two, three, one, two, three. He even says three characteristics of these certain people who've crept in unnoticed. Ungodly, pervert the grace, deny Jesus. One, two, three. So again, we're looking at three more things that Jude talks about today. And I just want to encourage us real quick. Uh, last week, I, I feel as, as we went through this, it was such a great encouraging reminder of who we are as Christians in Christ. However, today, Jude doesn't hold back. He's calling out false preachers. He's calling out these apostates with judgment from God. So just bear with me this morning. We're talking a lot about judgment, but I promise I'm not going to leave you in this sort of pit of despair and, and this, this sort of finger-waving of God's judgment over people. As we go through this again, I, I, was, going, I was reading it, and I'm like, yikes, this is, uh, this is intense. Um, but, but again, bear with me. We'll get through it together. And it's important to know, right, we call the gospel the good news. Why do we call it the good news? Because there's bad news, right? So without knowing the bad news, which is without Christ, we're all sinners who are on our way to hell, facing eternal judgment. What makes the gospel good news is that in Christ, we don't have that fear. We have the encouragement and the promise of eternal life. So bear with me as I explain and break down the bad news, and I'll leave us with some good news this morning. Let's read verses 5 to 11. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of fire. Yet in like manner, these people, also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Verse 9. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. They are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain of Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. And we'll stop there this morning. That's a lot. (laughs) And uh, like I mentioned last week, I hope you did your homework. I said, if you could read through this book this week, and don't get caught up on some of these confusing and interesting stories, but we'll work through them together these next couple of weeks. So if you have your notes, your bulletin insert, I'm going to give you the first three points. That way you don't get distracted or nervous in case you miss them. 
Point number one, we're going to look at God's judgment of apostasy. God's judgment of apostasy. Number two, we're looking at the true nature of apostasy. Number three, remembering past apostasy. So judgment, true nature, and past. Let's pick up at verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So when we read the Bible, right, the Old Testament is full of all these promises of Israel. We read about how God chose the Israelites as his chosen nation. In one sense, it's a picture of God's love and redemption and mercy and grace towards sinners. But what Jude does is he sort of looks at the other side of that equation. He says, it also served as a reminder for divine judgment for these Israelites, for some of these Israelites who turned away. Again, God's judgment against apostasy, against false teachers, against those who defect from the truth, who know the truth and reject him, it's found all throughout the Old Testament. He delivered the Israelites from Egypt, from their bondage of slavery. He gave them freedom, yet he also destroyed those who did not believe. So why don't you turn with me to Numbers chapter 14. Go to the book of Numbers chapter 14, verse 26. And we'll read a few verses together. Numbers 14, 26. Numbers 14, 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? And who is this wicked congregation? It's the Israelites. We'll keep reading. I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumbled against me. This is God talking. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead body shall fall in this wilderness, and of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell except Caleb and Joshua, but your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in. And they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead body shall fall in this wilderness. And your children shall be like shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and they, they shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lie in the wilderness. According to the number of days in which you spied out the land, forty days, a year for each day, you shall bear your, your iniquity forty years and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely I will do this to all this wicked generation who have gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. That's a pretty powerful picture of God's judgment, right? And as you read this, your mind might say, is God really that harsh? Why, is God just an angry being an angry God who's just waiting for us to mess up and, and zap us and just kill us, right? Why, why is he so mean? If you look at who these people are, the Israelites, these are people who saw God's power, who saw God in, in probably a way we won't, right? If you look back of what they lived through, they had not a doubt in their mind that he is God, he is Yahweh, he is the Lord, he is their creator, these people, the Israelites, they lived and they saw the plagues that God sent to the Egyptians. They lived through those plagues. And it's funny, as you study the, the ten plagues, almost, I think every single one of those plagues is, is an attack on an, 
an, on, on an Egyptian god. So God's sort of flexing his power even to the Egyptians and saying, you think your God's powerful? I own your God. I'm better than your God. I am God. So they saw these plagues. They also walked across dry land. They went across the Red Sea, was split in half. They saw God crash the waves back on the Egyptians who were chasing them. He delivers them from slavery in a supernatural, miraculous way. They're led by a pillar of fire. Uh, what? <laughs> They're led by a pillar of fire. Just think about that. Through the wilderness. They also received bread from heaven, and they received water from rocks. Right? I don't wake up and walk across the field and, and collect bread on my way over to church. That, that doesn't happen. Right? I don't just smash a rock when I'm thirsty. Right? They saw God's power. And they also saw his love for them. He delivered them, his mercy towards them. And what do we read in Numbers 14? They grumbled. And actually, some of them came together, and they wanted to turn away from God. They wanted to ditch God, and they, they longed for and lusted to go back to Egypt to be under slavery. So again, for Jude's readers, people reading his letter here, Israel's judgment's a vivid reminder of what happens to those who see the power of God who know the truth and love of God and witness what he can do but still fail to believe. The Lord will condemn and destroy all such apostasy, all false preachers, all false teaching, all false truth. So we see even within God's chosen nation, the Israelites, which you fast forward into the New Testament, the Jews, there's judgment for some. The second thing he brings up here, letter B, so letter A is apostate Israel, Letter B is apostate angels. In verse 6, this is what we read. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And as I'm reading this, I'm like, well, who are these angels? Or really, who are these falling angels, a.k.a. who are these demons? We don't really know for sure. We can speculate, right? Sometimes it's to speculate, but I think, you know, we put the Bible to the side. Some people think these might have been the, the third of the angels that fell with Satan at the rebellion at the beginning of creation or before creation of earth. Some also think that it might have been the angels mentioned in Genesis chapter 6 who came down and, and fell even further into just sin and evilness and had sex with women and created Nephilim, this abomination. Right? We don't really know for sure. Right? Jew doesn't tell us. We do know his readers have an idea. He says in verse uh, five, he says, I want to remind you, right? He's reminding his readers of things that they know. We don't really know who these angels or who these apostate angels, demons are, other than that they were really evil. They were so evil that God locks them in eternal chains, in utter or gloomy darkness. There's a story of, of Jesus when he cast out the demon. He's talking to a demon, and the demon says, we, my name is Legion, for we are many, right? And, and they say to Jesus, please don't send us, don't cast us to the utter darkness. So even this, this term, utter darkness, right, these demons that are on earth, that's in this guy, right, they are afraid of the demons that are in this utter darkness, eternal chains. These are terrible, evil demons that God has kept in his sovereign power under uh, chains until the judgment of the great day. And we know two things about these apostate angels. The first thing is that they didn't stay within their position of authority. That's what Jude says. They went outside the realm of authority that God gave them. So God commanded one thing, and they rebelled, and they, they went past what God told them to. The second thing is they left their proper dwelling. They left heaven, and they fell. So we see 
apostate Israel, even God's chosen nation, people from that cannot be apostates and face God's judgment. Even heavenly beings who defect from the truth of God will face God's judgment. And let her see the last example Jude gives us. Again, one, two, three, that same pattern. He talks about apostate Gentiles. Right, and whenever I preach this to the youth group kids like Jews and Gentiles, because the New Testament is full of these, these two groups of people, it's really just saying you're either a Jew or a Gentile. You are God's chosen, right, Jew or Gentile, but later the Jewish people, they qualify or they classify the whole world in these two categories. So even Jude's saying it doesn't matter if you're a Jew, a Gentile, a.k.a. anybody who's alive on the earth, or even if you're in heaven, you're facing God's judgment. So he points out apostate Gentiles. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 7, and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So Jude's reminding and saying these people in these cities, they engage in these shocking, horrific, immoral sexual sins. And Jude even says they pursued unnatural desire if you want to read more about that, you can go to Genesis 19 or jot it down and, and go to it later. I was going to read it, but I think for the sake of time, I'll just summarize it. It's a story when the angels come into Sodom and, and visit Lot. They go to Lot, and, and they say, you know, we're going to hang out in the, to- in, the, in the town square. And Lot's like, no, no, don't do that. Come, come to my house. We'll, we'll have a feast. Come to my house. And he brings the angels into his house, and it says the whole town Every man from young to old came and pounded on Lot's door saying, who are these people? Bring them out so that we may know them. That's Bible talk for we want to have sex with them. So again, you see this gross immorality, and this is probably what he means by they pursued unnatural desire. They pursued to know the angels in that way. And God destroys Sodom, and Jude reminds his readers that they're undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. A lot of, some Christians, I won't say a lot, but some Christians and a lot of people in general think that there is no eternal punishment, that hell might be just a temporary place where you go to get purged from your sins. And I read this and I'm like, I don't think that's what the Bible says. Jude says eternal fire, a punishment that will last forever, forever being tormented. So what do we see in this first section of God's judgment of apostasy? Again, these are people who did not contend for the faith. They gave up. Rather than to fight for the truth and to fight for their faith, they said, you know what, God? No thanks. And in Hebrews, the the author of Hebrews says, these apostates, they hate Jesus so much that if it were up to them, they would re-crucify him all over again. This is a deep hatred, even of knowledge of God. They hate him. So he uses these three dramatic illustrations of of apostasy as a reminder of what awaits those who defect from the truth of God. It doesn't matter if you're an Israelite, God's chosen. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile. It doesn't matter if you even aren't a human and you're a heavenly being. There is judgment to be had. There is judgment that will be faced. As I titled my sermon, Judgment is Coming. Right? Judgment is coming for those who are not in Christ. And I want to pause here because that's sort of the bad news. I sort of just bashed you over the head with a lot of heavy theology and, and heavy, I would say, in some regard, discouragement, right? But the encouragement that we can take for this or the motivation we have is that as believers and as Jude's uh, readers, it's a motivation or an encouragement to fight for the truth, contend for the, food, uh, for the faith, fight for the truth because eternal life is coming for those who are in Christ. Right? That's the encouragement. That's what we're longing. That's the promise that God has given us. 
The second thing we're going to look at is verses 8 to 10 is the true nature of apostasy. The true nature. So let's, read, let's just read verse 8. Yet, in like manner, these people, the apostates, also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. One, two, three. Three things again. Again, he's saying that these apostates, they don't use God's truth. He, he says they rely on their dreams. False teachers or false preachers or apostates, what they'll say is they'll use their own dreams as their source of, of, of truth and authority for, their, for divination, right? As their divine source for new truths. They're living in a fantasy world. They're letting their dreams be the truth. They reject God's word for their own sinful and deluded minds. And in verse 8, Jude gives us three characteristics of their nature. Letter A, he brings up their immorality. Their immorality. He says they defile the flesh. And this word defile, it means to, it's a verb meaning to dye or to stain something. And when he says flesh, he's referring to physical bodies. So Jude's saying that there's a moral and there's a physical defilement happening. And also, like most people who are slaves to their sin, they're also slaves to sexual sin as well because apostates do not have the ability to refrain from their lusts. As Paul says in Romans 8, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. They're slaves to their sin, they're slaves to their lust. And Jude tells us later in his letter that they're devoid of the Spirit. They don't have the Spirit within them. They don't have the divine power to say no to sin, to control their sinful impulses. The second thing in verse 8 that Jude brings up is their insubordination. Their insubordination. And he says that by saying they reject authority. They demand to rule their own lives. Their authority comes from themselves, from their own dreams or their own visions, their own truths. And they refuse to submit to Christ's lordship. In verse 4 last week, it says they deny Jesus as the only Lord and master. And even Jesus had to battle people like this. In Matthew 23, you don't have to turn there, but I, I feel like when I read this, you'll know this story. It's very well known. Jesus is calling out apostasy. He's calling out false teachers. He says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you are like a whitewashed tomb, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. On the outside, they look good, right? That's why apostasy is so hard, because they could have everything that looks good. They can say truths about who God is, but if you look further into their lives, their actions, the way they live does not reflect who they claim God to be. And that's where they come as, as, as wolves in sheep's clothing, Again, Jesus had to face the Pharisees, the scribes, these hypocrites. They'd say one thing, and they'd do another thing. The last thing, letter C, that we learn about in verse 8 is we learn about the apostates' irreverence. Irreverence. Jude says they blaspheme the glorious ones. And, and another translation, and I like it a little bit better, it's a little bit more powerful, says they revile angelic majesties. Right, so to have reverence for God, right, that's just sort of talking about a, a fear or a respect of, of, of knowing who God is and his authority and knowing who you are in light of who God is. That, that's having reverence for God. But he's saying these apostates don't have that. If anything, they're irreverent. 
And then in verses 9 to 10, right, most of us probably have, we read this and we got really caught up in this because it's an interesting little story. But Jude uses these, these couple of verses to really compare the irreverence of the apostates and even the reverence of the archangel Michael. So let's just read these two verses. Verse 9 in, in Jude. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. That's the irreverence. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. And a little bit of background on the archangel Michael, right? This is the only time archangel is used in the Bible. Some people think that Gabriel, the, the angel who appeared, who appeared to Mary, could have been an archangel, but we don't read that in the scripture. We read that Michael is an archangel, and he's one of God's most powerful angels, and he's even the protector of God's people. That's one of his jobs. You can read that in Daniel chapter uh, 12, I believe, or, or Daniel 6. Um, even Michael, right, himself did not demonstrate irreverence when he disputed with Satan. Michael knew that God could grant him power over Satan. If you have read through Revelation in chapter 12, there's a battle where Michael leads an angelic army against Satan, and he's victorious, and they cast Satan out of heaven. Right? So Michael knows right, the power that he has over Satan, but rather than that, out of reverence for God, and even knowing Satan's status and power, because I think some of us, we don't give Satan enough credit. Satan is powerful. Right? Michael knew that. Out of reverence for God, Michael did not dare to pronounce judgment over Satan as if he possessed the authority or the sovereignty over Satan to do that. He didn't. He, in fact, all he said was, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord is sovereign and has sovereign authority over you, Satan. The Lord rebuke you. And it's interesting because nowhere else in the Bible do we read this story. We know from Deuteronomy 34 that, that Moses dies and it actually says that nobody knows where his body is buried. So again, Bible here, right, we can sort of speculate a little bit that maybe Michael was tasked with burying Moses' body. Right? It says nobody knows where it is. If people buried him, they would know where his body was. So we get a little bit of an insight, possibly. Right? I'm, I'm speculating. The Bible's here. I'm speculating a little bit. And we see that the, that the devil, Satan, wanted to use Moses' dead body. And we can only guess it wouldn't be for anything good. It'd be evil. It'd be selfish. And it would lead... He wanted to lead the Israelites to sin. Again, he says, the Lord rebuke you. And we see further that these apostates, that, that Jude's calling out, right? He compares them to unreasoning animals in verse 10. They understand and know things only by instinct. They're like dumb animals who cannot be reasoned with because they do not know reason and cannot reason. No matter how highly educated these, these teachers might sound or how profoundly philosophical they might be, or how mystical their vision or insights they claim to have, Jude says they're like brute, dumb animals. He says they, they blaspheme all that they do not understand. And, uh, and one commentary author writes, In divine matters they are no brighter than the dumbest beasts. They are destroyed by their own sinful and moral destruction. They're self-destructing. And that brings us to, to the last point for this morning. Remembering past apostasy, verse 11. And what Jude does is he calls out, again, three, one, two, three, three different people by name. Woe to them, verse 11, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and have perished in Korah's rebellion. 
And I love this. Jude knew the importance of looking to the past, remembering the past, and using that as examples for what they're facing currently. So the first person he brings up is letter A is Cain. In Genesis chapter 4, if you want to jot that down and read, read the story a little bit later, we learn that for some reason Cain's sacrifice was not pleasing to God. God did not accept it. Cain is the son of Adam and Eve. He has a brother named Abel. So there's a couple of, of again, reasons why God did not accept his offering. It's one, there's, there's sort of two theories. One is to believe that after Adam and Eve have sinned, right, God commanded them the way of atonement is by bloodshed, is by a blood sacrifice, because blood is the payment for sin. And we'll get that a little bit later uh, in, in, this, in the message here. But so also, you know, one reason is that God already established the right way of sacrifice. And another way, or another theory, is that Cain didn't offer his best. Right? So there's sort of two theories here. Cain didn't offer his best. We know that Cain was in charge of the land. He sort of tilled and worked the field. And his brother Abel was in charge of animals. So it says Abel brought the firstborn, the, the best of what he had before God. And it says Cain just brought his fruits or his offering to God from, from his, the fruit of his own labor. So instead of obeying God's requirement, right, in one way or another, God doesn't accept his sacrifice, his offering, and Cain tries to invent his own form of worship, his own way to God. His inappropriate offering, it really revealed the selfishness and the sin of his heart. He rejects what God says, right, and, and God's way, and he chooses his own way, his own sacrifice, his own pride. And Cain's rebellious and he's disobedient, and even when God did not accept his, his offering, Cain went out and killed his brother Abel in jealous anger. He murders his brother. So likewise, Jude's comparing these apostates. They, they follow the way of Cain. They abandon and, and follow the way of Cain. They're self-willed. They walk in disobedience to God's commands. They're selfish. The second person that, that Jude calls out by name from the Old Testament is Balaam. And this, is, this story is found in Numbers 22 to 24, and, and if, if this sounds familiar, it's a story of the talking donkey. Maybe you remember that in Sunday school or, or in a Bible study, you're like, what, a talking donkey? Um, this is a really interesting story, and I'm not going to read and look back, but I'm going to simplify it as best as I can, and I'm going to trust and hope that you look back and you compare what I'm saying to God's word. But we learn that Balak, he's the king of Moab, he hires Balaam, to go in to curse the Israelites. Balaam's a prophet for hire. He practiced magic and divination for money, right? God used an angel, even along with Balaam's donkey, to prevent Balaam from carrying out this plan to curse Israel. And later, a few chapters later in number, Balaam, it says Balaam leads Israel into sin. He's an apostate. He causes them to sin. And as a prophet for hire, right, Balaam's a prime example for apostates. They love wealth. They love prestige more than faithfulness and obedience. And the very last person that Jude brings up in, in verse 11 is Korah. Korah's rebellion. You can read about Korah in Numbers 16. Korah is Mo was Moses' cousin, and when he wasn't chosen as priest, he led a rebellion against his cousin. He got mad at Moses and said, Moses, all you're doing is, is exalting yourself. And, and I want, you know, he's, he's very selfish and very jealous of Moses. He's like, I want that. And he actually says to Moses in Numbers uh, 16, he rejects the idea that the Israelites need a leader and they need a mediator, right? 
Moses was someone who spoke to God on the Israelites' behalf, who shared his truth, had authority, and God gave him that authority over the Israelites. And later, you know, in this chapter, Korah refers to the Israelites being holy. He said, the Israelites are holy enough to go to God without you, Moses. They don't need you. He openly rebuked against the authority that God gave to Moses. And how did God respond to this rebellion? With divine punishment. In Numbers 16, 32, it says, the earth swallowed them up, right? The way that they got punished was a way that you can only attribute as a supernatural judgment that God did. They didn't die from like getting old or from a sickness, right? That comes a little bit later, but the earth swallows them up. Don't really know what that means. It's probably not a good way to go. And in Korah's rebellion, after the earth swallows up these 250 men, Israel starts grumbling against Moses because of Korah. Korah further infects even more Israelites. And then God sent a plague that kills an additional 14,700 Israelites who trusted in Korah's word, who trusted in Korah's rebellion rather than God's truth and God's authority. So again, like Korah and all his supporters, these apostates rebel and they eventually will face God's judgment and his wrath. And Jude here, he paints a pretty vivid portrait of these apostates, right? The three things here. They choose the way of Cain over the way of Jesus. They choose the error of Balaam over the truth of Christ. And they choose the death of Korah over the life of Jesus, the life of Christ. And again, as I'm doing this, I'm like, man, this is some heavy stuff. Can I just skip this and go to the end and read the doxology right now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to prevent you faultless, right? That, that's the good stuff, right? Give, give me that. Give me that encouragement. Why is it important to talk about this? Because these are some heavy themes of, of judgment is coming. I think the first thing as we just sort of move into applications as I, as I close here this morning is that we're reminded that we have a God that takes sin seriously. God takes sin seriously seriously. Paul tells us in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, right? Sin demands payment, demands death, demands blood. But he says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The cost of sin is death, and we stand before a holy, perfect, eternal God as guilty because of our sin. But if we are in Christ, we receive his mercy his love, forgiveness, grace because of what Jesus Christ did on that cross. And yes, God is love and God is merciful. Yes, those are biblical truths of who God is, but God is also just. As we read this morning, God deals and and gives judgment to people who defect from the truth. He's a jealous God. He has that right. He is God. But those who believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, who've repented from their sins, who've been washed by the powerful blood of the Lamb, receive mercy, grace, forgiveness, and the promise of eternal life. So again, realize the seriousness of our sin. And as, you know, as Christians, the good news, right, that's the bad news. The good news is that if we're in Christ, we're forgiven. We're forgiven. And to further just sort of, you know, push this out here is we should be using this as a motivation to, to evangelize, to share our faith with others. Out of love and concern for others and their eternal judgment that's awaiting them, we should be telling them to repent and trust in Jesus. Because as Christians, we know what they're going to go up against. 
And I love this evangelist, and you can find him on YouTube. His name's Ray Comfort. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's a little bit older, but he goes out to like Santa Monica Pier in California, and he just dialogues with people and gets them thinking about spiritual truths. You know, are you a good person? How do you know you're a good person? And then he gives them the gospel as well. But he says this. He says, don't pray for less fear. Pray for more love when you're sharing the gospel, right? It's scary to share our faith. I can be up here preaching from the pulpit. If you see me on Friday night, I'm preaching downstairs to the youth group kids. I, 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 I am not scared doing that because in one regard, you're like, oh, you're at church. You're supposed to share your faith. But when you go back home and you share your faith with people you work with, your family members, people that are strangers, it's scary. Let, let's be, I'm not going to be up here and say, I'm never scared when I share my faith. No, it's scary. There is a fear to it. However, Ray Comfort says, don't ask for less fear. Ask for more love because you know where they're going to be heading. And out of that love for them and love for others, you should tell them the truth of the gospel. Perfect love gets rid of all fear. The second thing we should do is, we, it this, the, these uh, verses here, it encourages us to take caution to who we trust. We should be careful who we allow to influence us. Right? We live in a, in a day and age where you can just listen to anybody you want on YouTube. Any, the, the world is literally at your fingertips. You can go to any church website, listen to whoever you want, right? I've often said social media gives people a platform to speak. It also gives those who probably shouldn't speak a platform to say something too, right? Remember that the apostates come as spiritual terrorists. They destroy from within. They don't care about you. They don't care about the well-being of others. They care about themselves. And next week, we'll read what Jude says in, in verse um, 12. He says, they're at your love feast. They're shepherds who feed themselves, that's the selfishness of these shepherds, these apostates, right? As Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, I care for my sheep. Shepherds should feed their flock, not themselves. As I mentioned last week, we, we live in a world where everybody has their own truth, right? That, that's, that sort of is the phrase, well, that's your truth. That's not my truth, right? As Christians, no, no, no. God's word is the truth, right? And if my truth contradicts God's truth, who's in error? Me. If your truth contradicts what God says, who's in error? you. This is the ultimate authority of truth in the world. And again, lies are fed to thousands of Christians every Sunday. You'll hear phrases like, well, God really didn't mean that, right? Or, you know, how could God punish, you know, pretty good people, morally good people? Or, oh, God accepts me just as I am, right? God is love. He'll accept me just as I am. I don't have to do anything. God loves me, right? That, that, that's a half-truth, and half-truths are lies, we need to seriously consider the seriousness of our sins, who we allow to influence and, and who we allow to feed us. Right? Everything that I say from the pulpit, anybody that, that anything that anybody says from the pulpit, you compare it to God's word. No matter how much you love me, how much you trust me, you compare it to God's word. And that leads to the very last thing I want to say, number three. It's important to know God's word. Right? Jude alludes to the fact that his readers know about these past events. In verse 5, he says, I want to remind you of what you once knew. Right? Do you know God's truth enough to decipher between his truth and the world's truth? Right? Everybody makes truth claims every day. It's in your face. Do you know God's word enough to say, wait a minute, that's a red flag. That, that's not what God says. That's not what's in his word. Again, when you know or I should say, what you know about the Bible, what you know about Christ, affects how you live, how you love others, 
and how you love God. So again, be careful who you allow to influence your mind, but also know God's word. Paul says in Ephesians, and I think I preached on this a few months ago, and I, and I love this verse. He says, do not be like this. Do not be like children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. We should be growing in our love, growing in our faith, growing in our knowledge of who Christ is and what he has done for us. Let's pray. Dear God, I just come before you and I confess that we don't deserve your mercy. We don't deserve your love. We deserve your judgment and wrath. However, we thank you that you showed your perfect love to us by sending Jesus Christ, your son, to be the atonement, to be the sacrifice for our sins. We thank you that in Christ there's eternal life. I pray, Lord, that this morning, yes, it's, it's, sometimes it's discouraging or it's sad to hear about the bad news, but the bad news reminds us of the good news. So, Father, I pray that this week we can be reminded of, of what's the cost of our sin, that it demanded death, and that we've sinned a lot, but Christ's love covers a multitude of our sins, all our sins. So I just pray, Lord, that we can live with that encouragement, live with the promise of eternal life as, as fuel for, for sharing our faith with others. I pray that we grow in your word daily. And yes, we all fail in this in, in some regard, but I pray, Lord, that you will continue to work on our heart and, and work on our sanctifying process to become more and more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your mercy and forgiveness. And in your holy and precious name we pray, amen.